0: In this episode, we got us a viewer question. And that question goes like this. From Ted, he says, absolutely love your site. Best ever, and I will write recommendations. My question is this. Special Forces operators, when interviewed, all share terrible physical and mental ramifications. Those in the CIA abandon their family, never hear a word of praise, have no impet on what they do, and also suffer great psychological hardships. Do these people really know what they're getting into? They blow it off with useful exuberance. Is it a not me mindset? I listened to many interviews on trap and Ryan. Almost every SF operator suffers great emotional, mental, physical, and PSD severe pain. My admiration for them is off the charts. But again, if they really knew what they had had permanent brain damage from explosions in my previous points, would they still have joined? Where's their support? I can't listen to even one more SF story. It's too hard to hear my heroes paying a price. In my opinion, is beyond too high so special operations forces and those in the world of covert and clandestine action intelligence and otherwise that's what we're going to talk about right here on gray man hiding in plain sight now while I will of course answer the question I am going to address how it is written because there is a lot of assumptions made in there that are inaccurate based on how a person sees a world or a thing or an industry they're not part of, which I totally get because I do it too. I mean, I always use a combustion engine as an example, but there are things in this world I don't know enough about to understand. And I'm like, what is going on? So I understand that question. I'll be answering it from my point of view, as well as that of some of my close friends and people I've worked with or know. I'm not saying this is for everybody, but I think this is going to generally hold true for A large portion of people to some degree. While many of us have similar experiences, shared experiences and background, how they affect us all can be similar in some aspects and widely different in others. I do want to say thanks that you love the site, trying to keep it going. I've had a hard time doing that as I'm sure you've seen. I really want to get my own website going or figure something out. I'm glad that you're going to give recommendations. Hopefully there's people that enjoy it too, or at least listen to the podcast and like it. And I'm thankful that people are writing in questions. Why is this important to the great man concept? Because one of the things I think you've caught on to by now for those listening, a portion of the things we could ask have to do with people living off grid, bugging out, situations like that, which makes sense. And I understand with some of the stuff I talk about why that would help you. But to understand this, you take this question and you take the war side out of it and just look at big portion of his people being in traumatic situations, life and death situations on their own long-term. However he meant it to be, that is part of how that life can be. Was people that want to try to go full-fledged gray man, because you remember the whole point of this was taking a few cool little things like this, people be interested in and translating them to everyday life that people could use them for fun or to enhance their own privacy, to enhance their own security, things like that to make your life better. But to understand it, If you really did it, I've explained before, it'd be lonely, it'd be hard, but it will cause trauma and you will have problems. I mean, I've talked how many times about the survival shows like alone, you know, the two biggest things that affect those people, number one, lack of calories, which results in mental decline due to shortage and deficiency of nutrition and also being separated from their loved ones. And they put themselves in that position and they got tested. So I also mentioned, too, that he uses the term SF and SF operators quite a bit. I think what you generally mean is Special Operations Forces because those guys interview guys that are Green Berets, guys from CIA. I think they've interviewed guys from other agencies because not all the guys that do that kind of work are necessarily in the CIA. You know, you got Navy SEALs, Raiders. Some Rangers have done some pretty cool stuff like that, more than just the regular direct action stuff, and everybody else in that community. So looking at... Our tier one, tier two assets, highest profile missions, most dangerous, most dangerous and specialized training, best in the world. Looking at that group of people, let's put them in that bubble. All share terrible physical and mental ramifications. Okay. Part of that is true. They do share, and I have, I don't think I've done one here, but I've done with friends of mine, say ramifications of things from experiences in my past. And part of this, too, if you think about the stuff we're talking about, I'm going to pick apart some of the language that you've used. But I'm doing that not to say you're wrong. I'm doing that to show people how we interpret the way other people communicate. So while you say they're terrible, my question would be, would each one of them say it's terrible? I'm sure some of them have, but some of them probably wouldn't. You know, there's there's a group of guys that I like to watch. Because when they get together they have really good conversations and they're they're pretty smart about stuff and that's because I'm using this example one of them is Evan Hafer the owner of Black Rifle Coffee the other one is Andy Stump who has the cleared hot podcast and then Mike Glover who is the owner of Fieldcraft Survival so Andy and Mike and Evan really were all tier 1 guys because two of them were tier 1 in the military And then Mike went and did what we'd call tier one stuff in the civilian side. And what Evan did was tier one stuff on the civilian side for the agency. Anyway, whenever I see that they're going to be together, I just enjoy their conversations. Reminds me of hanging out with some of my buddies. Really funny stuff. Really good stuff. Really good thoughts and ideas. They they go from crazy to deep real fast. Anyway, they were talking about, I don't remember who, what the situation was, but it was discussing about people that were – big on like the numbers of people they had killed in war. And they were all kind of like, people actually count that or care about it. It goes to show that there are people that have probably done or realistically done a lot of that, but it doesn't affect them like it affects other guys that might've happened to once or twice or might've just seen it happen, which will lead into your question. But it also points to say that there are some people in this world that are more prepared for things or, enough training and exposure and experience it's not that they're desensitized it's that they're familiar with it they understand it and realize how it works and have learned how to deal with it that's not to say any of these guys were cool with it the whole time they may have had their issues i don't know they've ever talked about that or not but that is a real factor it's no different than anything else you know what about the first time you go somewhere like work or school when you're young or when it's a new job and you're If you're nervous, some people get that way or you're trying to get there early enough to find out where the coffee shop is, how to park, where to go, wherever. Anyway, it becomes habit after a while. It becomes normal. You don't have that emotional response anymore. While obviously a much smaller example, it's still very similar. Anyway, it says that, oh, and then you say those in the CIA abandon their family, never hear word plays and no input on what they do and also suffer great psychological hardship. None of that statement's accurate. First and foremost, most people who work at the agency and most people who work at any agency that have people that go overseas and do what they do, like DIA, for example. I'd have to look up the percentage, but it's going to be high 90s. I'll work regular hours or shift work and go home and see their families. That's just the majority of them. Okay, they don't abandon them. Very few people in that world are what you would call your spies. That number in percentage or actual number is so much smaller than people realize. The way you phrase that would be this if you took the first one, we talked about operators and just put that blanket statement for the military. Although a small portion of them are soft guys, a small portion of these agency guys are those people you're referring to. So that's not an accurate statement. Say they never hear a word of praise. They get praise all the time. When I was working with them and around them and deployed and also here in the States, they got as much regular praise and acknowledgement and as any person in the military from the people they worked with or from their family members who knew what they did or, just like my mom would always tell me she was proud of me having no, and admitting she has no idea what I'm doing, where I'm working, what I do, but proud that I would made that decision. There's guys like that that get told that too. And some of them don't need it. That's the other thing. It's this idea that we need the praise or want it. There's some people that do thrive off of that, but some people don't. It's kind of like in the military, what they call negative reinforcement, yelling at somebody, making them do push-ups, you know. Oh, you suck, run faster. That's part of how the military is taught to do things and there is a good purpose for it, but not everybody responds to that. Just like not everybody responds to praise, but some people need it. That's true. And this would make me wonder why that's important to you. Is it because you don't think they get enough praise or is it because that's something you would like? It doesn't matter either way. I'm just asking those questions. It says they have no input on what they do. Not entirely accurate at all. First of all, There is, if you work in that world, let's say you work in an area where your focus is, we'll say China, China's in the news right now, because there's people that work China. You work China, you work in an office, you're here in the United States, you know, you're doing shift work, the equivalent of a nine to five or whatever it is, and you go home every night. Well, yeah, I suppose when you got hired on and you went to the China desk, you probably didn't have a choice unless you asked for that or spoke Chinese or lived abroad and there was reasons to put you there. But looking from that aspect, in what job do you really have a choice? I mean, we don't think of it that way when it's a job we love. It's something we want to do. It's expertise we have and we go there and we do it. And then we're like, oh, here's your assignment today or here's the project we need to work on. Okay, cool. I mean, how many times do you get offered the option to do something else? I loved to be in the military overall. There were things I didn't like, but overall I loved it. And I don't think there was a point in my career I can recall where any day I had the option. I just knew what my job was and that's what I did. So there are times, though, when there are some options. So for example, some of the options, ways you have control. There was times I planned mission that gave me options and control. There was times when I planned missions, and I'm looking at this from the military aspect, where I brought my team in, even lowest level guys. And got their opinion not all the time but sometimes I let them do things I let guys say hey I would like to learn how to do that so I take them out and train them and then I would let them do it on a real-world mission especially depending on not their rank or their age but how well they perform that specific task I may put them on a mission that appears on the onset to not be as high of a threat so just in case there's a situation and to ensure that myself or the person that's the best guy for the job is close by in case they need to take over. So there are options there, but this idea that they're just kind of, uh, instead of autonomous, almost like a break glass situation where, well, you have this training, you have whatever, and you just sit in a dark room or I'm not saying that's what you do, but people have this idea. Like they're all these kind of guys, which they're not. And they're just there being waiting, waiting to be told what to do and they don't get a say in it. That's like movie stuff, right? So that's not entirely realistic. Now, going on from there, it says, do these people, so both groups, really know what they're getting into? So the answer is no to that. And I'll, I'll go into that a little bit deeper because your next session is, do they blow it off with useful exuberance? Is it a not-me mindset? So, no. Um, I remember... First time I trained in the Intel world, it seemed like literally it wasn't everybody, but it was enough people to say everybody thought they were gonna be a spy, which is not what they were doing at all. They were in it because of what they thought it was and thought it was cool. I've admitted flat out when I changed jobs because of my injuries and the situation when I was in, I saw an interrogator and that just sounded cool. Not even thinking about the fact at my age and how long I've been in the military, they didn't entirely understand the job. I just thought it sounded cool. And it gave me a ton of money and that was enough for me. I remember being in basic training with a bunch of infantry guys, and it seemed like with the exception of three or four dudes who were just there for the college plan, every single guy had this fantasy about how they were going to become a ranger and go into special forces and all the cool things they were going to do in the world because it was probably a mix of all those things. They didn't really know, and we were young. But later on in the military, I realized, even when I got into the intel side, there was people there in their 30s, even 40s, There's guys in the soft world that get in there, especially in some units coming from just regular jobs that are in their 30s or even 40s. It's rare, but it happens. And some of them have some of those same ideas. Some of us also mix in ideas of people we know that have either been there or worked with them. Some guys nowadays, too, deployed enough. They were around them and got to see what they do, but they don't see everyday life. So some of it is a little bit fantasy, but a lot more realism in it. But it also doesn't matter. Because if you're passionate about something and you're going to get off your ass, you're going to work hard and you see that as the next logical step, or you see that as a place you want to be and you're going to work hard for it, then overall, you're probably going to be satisfied when you get there. And then once you're there for a while, you can decide whether or not you want to stay. So it doesn't really matter, I don't think, how much they know they're getting into. And if you were to say, is there a possible way if we laid all this out and let them see all these interviews and et cetera, et cetera, do you really think people will join? Well, yeah, because people go on those shows all the time, and or write in and talk about getting prepared. When Andy does cleared Hot, there is always guys on there talking about going in the Navy to be a SEAL or going into other jobs. What they should do. There is another guy uh, named Buck who has the FNG Academy about helping guys prepare who want to go to the Q course to be Green Berets. There is plenty of people out there, and look at the benefit of that. I talked in the previous podcast about people that were wanting to do these types of things because of fiction books they had read. Okay. Now we got people that have lived that life that know people want to get in there that are going to get in there for the wrong reasons or because of a fiction book. And they're coming out with real world nonfiction information and preparation stuff. So yeah, people are going to want to get in there just from that. As far as the not me mindset, I don't think that really goes as deep as people think. I, I, I think it's more about things people just don't contemplate. For example, I don't remember who made the statement, how exactly it goes, but there's some truth to it. It has to do, I think, more with athletic competition or people that win. I've heard about people in business say it as well as athletes. Most people that win or win a lot or train to win, they don't even – it's not that they're going to always win, but they don't think about losing. They don't consider that as an option because they, they train for that goal. They're aware they could lose and come in second place or 25th place, but that's not what they focus on. Doing that is what we'd call in the military a 60% soldier. In my time, the PT test was based on three events, hundred points each. You need a minimum of 60% to pass. And there's people who would show up at the PT test, regardless of fitness level and say, well, what do I need to pass? That was a 60% soldier. And people who heard that would shun them and they wouldn't get a lot out of it because they weren't trying to improve themselves. They weren't trying to be the best. They weren't trying to test themselves. And if they're going to have that attitude in that situation, they're going to carry it in other places. So I don't think it's necessarily the not me thing. The other thing too is when it comes to survival and basic instincts of things, people that are proactive in these situations, the run towards gunfire people, a lot of that has to do with who they are as a person and how they view crisis. Very little of it. But some of it has to do with their training and their background. It's part of our natural instincts. They're not doing it as a not me, it won't happen to me, I'm invincible, like people think, that's not where that comes from. It's the idea that there is a bad thing that needs to be stopped. Because when there's a bad thing or crisis and instincts kicked in, there's only three responses that are going to happen. One is you're going to run away. The second one is you're going to try to protect others. And the third one is you're going to run towards a threat. It's been studied many times, and it's something like 80%, 90% survival rate is going at the threat. The remainder of it that might work, although unlikely, is the complete running away from the threat and protecting others from the threat is damn near guaranteed going to get you killed. So it's not, this, it's not the not-me mindset, it won't happen to me. I don't think that's accurate at all. And many of these guys that are coming out now have only been in a few years and have experienced some of this stuff and seen some of these other guys before, I have known them and aware that stuff's there. That's why some of them get out. Some of them get out because they see guys that stay in this world for a long time and deploy a lot and get injured or are suffering. And they don't want that or don't want it any more than what they have. Okay. Let's see what else you go. If they really knew they would have permanent brain damage from explosions, would they still join? I think I've already answered that. I mean, I knew about that stuff. I knew about IEDs. the idea of an ID terrified me, but I was like, yeah, that sucks. Cause I never see it coming. But then I was like, I wouldn't see a bullet coming either. But it was, uh, I, don't, I don't think that's, an, I think I've answered that. Where's their support? Well, family mainly. Um, the VA gets better, has its issues, but the VA has been very good at it and very proactive. The military is getting better at it. In fact, despite all the dumb, bad things that's gone on in the military in the last 10 years, at least the people I'm aware of, the regular military that have been around some of this stuff or worked in the intelligence community, uh, it's, it's encouraged and supported for people to get mental health support. I know people that are doing that. I know people active duty right now with high level clearances that are doing recommended classes for mental health support just to get through normal everyday things. Uh, some for these types of events that do online counseling sessions with people that are contracted that aren't at their same location. And it's very helpful for them. There's tons of that kind of support out there. There's all kinds of helplines. There's people that do that. There's all kinds of these guys from this world that have experience or have friends of experience of sayings or or know people that have killed themselves that have started all kinds of things to help individuals. Equine therapy's real big. Psychedelics are real big. What are they called? The decompression? I, I can't remember what they're called, but those are the big chambers you get in that change the air pressure, make it similar to being like under 30 feet of water long term. There's tons of those out there. Tons of veterans taking guys out to do adventure stuff, helping people after they get out and they create uh, different programs. I know there's one, probably more than one, that goes to Alaska and takes people fishing and hunting. Tons of people do that stuff. There's been guys like what I've done is just people I've known. I've helped them get through the process to get in the VA. There's a lot more out there than people realize. And more and more veterans are taking advantage of it because they're being made aware of it. Not to mention family support, not to mention any type of spiritual religious support that people get that help them. And the biggest one though, is our, our friends and our friends with shared experiences. Like I look at some of these guys that are veterans that know each other and they do podcasts and they have businesses and they do all this stuff and they tell war stories and you know all that kind of stuff. I don't think what people realize, and maybe they don't sometimes, but sometimes I look at it and I think, this is what I did with a lot of my friends that helped me the most. And I, I think some of this, whether it's intended to be or not, is a form of therapy. To be able to have these conversations, talk about these things, talk about how we feel about them with our friends and buddies that understand or we're there. So there's there's more out there right now than there was just three or four years ago. And I, I sometimes it, fa- it blows my mind people don't see it when it's like right there. But all those things are there and there's so much more. What else do you got? I can't listen to one more story. Probably should, man. There's some good ones out there. It's too hard to hear them paying the price. And my opinion is beyond too high. I don't mean this to sound offensive, but I can tell you my position is. I know guys think this way, too. Somebody said that statement. We just wouldn't talk to him anymore. Like that's it's arrogant. I say that because your opinions are relevant. It doesn't matter. You don't get to have an opinion on what I choose to do with my life or if I choose to use it. Or put myself in a position to potentially sacrifice it for the betterment of this country or my beliefs. So, and it's it's for me to decide whether or not my sacrifice was too high or beneficial. It's not for you. It's no different than when we used to get off the airplanes and we all these people there clapping and saying, "Oh, thank you," and all you know that went on for years. That was annoying. We hated it. It was irritating. It was so wrong. And I'm glad they finally figured it out and stopped it. We decide whether or not it's worth it. But here's the thing. There's a lot of those things. The fact that they deployed or got shot up or shot some people up. Yeah, we're probably not supposed to see as much as that as we do as some people do. Probably not supposed to. But it's such a small part. Like, let's say you deploy. And let's say you're in these worlds where your deployments might only be four to six months long. a A lot of times, not all of them. And, you know, your family can't take it and your spouse goes off and messes around and and throws you under the bus and they go hook up with some other dude. Okay, that has nothing to do with you and the fact that you are gone for three or four months because there's all kinds of jobs out there where people go to conventions and disappear for three or four months. And, you know, it's interesting every time we see a movie and TV show, they're only going for a weekend or a month and their spouses are messing around. And it seems like that happens more often. And it's because they're not prepared for it, understand how to deal with it, or missing something already in that marriage. It may or may not be the other person's fault that somehow they both contributed to. It's not because they're in war. You know, and that's one example. People that, I know people who've deployed a lot and been gone for large portions of their life, have really good close relationships with their kids and really know their kids well, truly do. And they were gone most of the time. It's because they put the effort in when they were there Okay, to, to say that in that example, they can't do that because they weren't there suggests that you automatically gain that knowledge and relationship just by being in the same room, which is not how that works. You have to make the effort. Just like people that are together all the time, all the time, every day, and then they get divorced one day because they fell out of love. It's because they were physically there, but they weren't present in the moment and made, made the attempt. The other thing as far as psychological stuff, yeah, some of it sucks. I had some of my own issues too. Uh, Some of these guys have talked about the issues they had were never about what they did. It was about people they knew that died, and that sucks, and we just knew enough people that died that it caused trauma. That could happen to anybody in other situations, or it was situations where it was leaving the military. A lot of guys that left the military, that was their life. They were used to it. They overall enjoyed it and decided to leave. Many of them for good reasons, or maybe it was medical. They didn't want to leave, but you know, I got to leave. So they have to transition into regular life. And sometimes they do okay in the short term, go see some movies or whatever, but all of a sudden it hits them. I've got nothing, you know, it's even worse if the relationships ended or they don't have one healthy one at the time. I've got nothing. I have to transition. You know, civilians are weird. They're undisciplined. There's all these bad things about civilians. And believe me, it's very real. And I got to go deal with this stuff and I'm not used to it. And that's really the biggest weakness and biggest thing that we have a hard time with. It's not about all this stuff you're suggesting. It's transitioning to normal everyday life. And then I think that's why a lot of guys have gone out and just taken the experience and knowledge they learned and turned it into a business. or started training people. It probably initially gave them some familiarity, some stability, gave them purpose. The Same time gave them income. And probably became a form of therapy. You know, that's... I'm not saying that's how it all works for all of them. I think it works for some of them. I didn't train people until years later, so I don't really get that feeling or sense from doing training. I have to be around my buddies or go shooting with guys I know or had similar backgrounds to really feel that. But I know people that for sure got those benefits from training and going out there and doing that. The point is to say also that everything you're describing – happens in larger percentages and larger numbers of the community to the regular military than it does just to people in special operations. So don't forget them. So there's that, there's that number one, that's where the majority of it is percentage wise and uh, numerically of course, cause it's much larger. The other thing too is there are other people out there in the world we forget about that do fall into these categories as well. Even some less known places where they get separated from their families. But there's a lot of assumptions made in here. It wasn't a personal attack, which is to point out there's a lot of people that make these kind of assumptions and seem logical to them, not realizing someone comes from movies or much. maybe it's just the limit of information you don't know anybody to talk about or talk to it to get these answers. But I'm hoping this puts it in perspective. I would love to hear from anybody out there who's got similar backgrounds, military, special operations guys, how they dealt with this stuff, how they see it. Do they agree with anything or disagree with something I said? It'd be worth talking about. I think one of the things that's missing in the world right now there's a couple of guys like Sean. Sean Ryan did do a video a couple of years ago. Guy from Vigilant, you mentioned he came out and did a video talking about anxiety, I think, or something like that. Uh, he's sitting in the woods. It's a short video, like 20 minutes, 30 minutes long, I think. Talked about anxiety and issues he had and how he dealt with them, trying to help other people. I think somebody else had done one too that was really good. And I've seen guys kind of hint it, briefly discuss it a little bit, but what we really need are some guys who've really gone through some issues sit down and talk about and not trying to sell, you know, their product or trying to sell this therapy is the way to go just to let people realize how familiar it is, how common it is, how bad it can be, but how bad it's really not many times and how we've dealt with it and what we've done or if we've done it. And hopefully it's a mix of people from these worlds, but also regular military and maybe even bringing in people that had nothing to do with this that have had other traumatic experiences in life such as deaths or um, attacks things that they've survived so that people can realize there's a lot of similarities and most importantly the number one similarity is when you look at ptsd it's post-traumatic there's no description on the trauma it's a disorder based on stress after a certain traumatic event and you find out that no matter what that event is people that have it fall into the same category of symptoms and issues and problems and that it doesn't matter what happens to them. And the thing is, it's assumptive to say that people are making bad decisions or don't have the right mindset or aren't getting the right support because they live in this magical world that we put on a pedestal.